Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Today's guest is a director of fiscal policy at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, a research and educational institute in Midland, Michigan. His name is James Homan. James, welcome to the show. Hello, how's it going? It's going very well. I recently read an article of yours about protectionism and I, it it resonated with me very strongly. I've been arguing about this with people for ever since really Trump came on the scene because people would say Trump is a capitalist. And to me, if you're arguing for protectionism, you may be a lot of things, but a capitalist, you are not. So my first question, so we can define our terms here, what exactly is protectionism? Uh the way the way that its supporters use it is the way that I'm going going to define it, which is just that uh, this this belief that we can use the powers of government to protect domestic in, uh, domestic industry uh, to, to protect domestic industry uh, from foreign influence, so that we can make sure that our industry is powerful, it employs people, and and uh, we all come out ahead through this uh, uh, through uh, through protections. So it can be uh, tariffs, it can be uh, subsidies, it can be a lot of things. So for instance, the, the classic case of domestic protectionism that I think has failed us all is our, our domestic shipping uh, restrictions. So you can't ship a thing from domestic port to domestic port on a ship that is not built, uh, crewed, and, um, uh, and flagged in America. And this means that we don't have a competitive domestic shipping industry. It raises the cost for everyone and our shipbuilding industry itself, this thing that we're trying to protect is small and non-competitive. It's a complete failure of protectionist policy, but it is an example of protectionist policy being used to try to protect domestic shipbuilding industries. So you mentioned tariffs, and that's usually what comes into my mind when, I, when I'm thinking about protectionism, right? And we've heard a lot about making other countries pay their fair share. Who actually pays tariffs? With tariffs, first of all, tariffs are taxes on imported goods, right? Was that a, that a fair definition of, of a tariff? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's, uh, if you want to bring your goods into America, you're going to uh, be slapped with an extra fee imposed by the federal government. That's the simplest uh, definition of a tariff. And yeah, uh, it, it, there's a certain appeal that comes with this, which is let's make them pay for our, for our government. But in practice, it doesn't work that uh, work like that because uh, the company is not paying. It's whoever is purchasing those goods who are paying an extra price. And so it's a tax on consumers, just like any other tax. Uh, now, what I think is interesting about the tariff uh, specifically, because again, like, there has been this resurrected interest in the right in protectionism. And so we're trying to say, yes, we're trying to, this is going to let domestic manufacturers compete better against foreign competition. We're going to create jobs in America that, that aren't being created when we import products uh, from abroad. And it's like, well, I guess it depends. Uh, so for instance, um, if we're protecting, uh, so, Name, name a product and let's go through uh, go through this process that we're going to export to try and protect uh, American jobs. Well, you steel, you, you mentioned steel yeah. earlier. So if we're if we're importing steel, this is what I, I really want to know. And then I'll give you a chance to explain that. So if I'm the uh, say Carnegie Steel, it's it, just to throw to throw back to a prior time. Right. If I'm from Carnegie Steel and I want to buy 
raw steel from a foreign company, right? And the American government puts a tariff on that product. The foreign company is not paying that tariff, correct? The Carnegie Steel, the co the company that's actually buying the product and bringing it into the country, is the country the comp the company that pays the tariff. Uh, yes, I believe so. I mean, but that's uh, this is the long economic uh, his history or long economic literature is. But where is the the tax effectively paid by? Oh, so you yeah, can that's have the down the line. Yeah, and and something. I else. just mean so, at, the, at, yeah. the, at the beginning, it's actually the company that's importing the thing that brings it in. But then it, you know, you end up driving up costs and the, the prices, and it ends up the consumers pay it. I got that, but I just there's at no point what I'm saying where the foreign company is paying that tariff. Yeah. So uh, I believe that's the case. I'm not an international lawyer to, to try and to figure out the, the exact incidence of, of the person, but that sounds right. But in this case, we're protecting domestic steel producers by uh, putting a special tariff on, um, on, on foreign steel. All right. That protects our domestic steel industries. It costs our car manufacturers. It costs any person who uses steel, it protects some domestic interests above others. And that's not even to talk about American consumers, that's a special interest. But what happens with protectionism is that it winds up squeezing a balloon, as in you're trying to protect one side and you're just inflating, uh, inflating another. You're not making us all better off. You're elevating some domestic interests over others. You were trying to say that we're protecting uh, domestic interests, but we're really favoring some over others. This is a major problem with protectionism in general. And in fact, so this, this resurrected interest uh, in the right in, in protectionism, I think is, uh, is interesting because it didn't come with new insights about how to avoid the problems of protectionism. It didn't come with a new rationale for how it was going to be different this time. There are clear, basic, obvious reasons why protectionism doesn't deliver on its premise, and you can't just assume them away. And all the people who are selling uh, this new interest in protectionism hasn't found a way to deal with these problems. They're just trying to ignore them and to pretend like they don't exist, but they're real. We got to care about them because what they're selling is snake oil. It doesn't work. It doesn't do the job that law, our, our lawmakers uh, promise that it's right. going to. Provide. So the, the basic argument is that these foreign companies, they are able to undersell domestic companies. And because their pro products are so cheap that if we put a tariff on them, it's going to raise the cost of those products and then our domestic companies can compete. But the problem with that, right, is that you're raising the price. You're raising the price for domestic consumers. So you're actually harming consumers. While you may be protecting jobs in a given industry, say steel, but now all the consumers that are buying products made with steel have to pay a higher price. And these are, even if you accept the, the idea that Americans somehow should be elevated above citizens of other countries and get better deals than citizens in other countries, you're not actually giving them that deal, right? Because they're paying the higher price for these products. And that much is implicit in the whole argument of protectionism. Yeah. Uh, so- there are some terror, like what you're saying, especially applies in places where you're talking about the final man, the final consumer product, as in um, we're putting tariffs on um, on shoes that were already made. Uh, and that's going to protect domestic shoe manufacturers over foreign manufacturers. I'm not exactly sure how many shoe manufacturers we have in, in America, but most of these tariffs deal with 
things that are further upstream from that, tariffs on cotton, on basic products, on the things that are in the industrial supply chain. And when you're elevating those over other things, you're costing some, uh, you're costing the, uh, the people who use those products, the manufacturers who use those products uh, to protect other domestic uh, manufacturers. So it's again, like it, it's a tough thing to do to try and ensure that people come out ahead, even when we're uh, when uh, even if you could gloss over that consumer or that effect on the final consumers, which protects uh, manufacturers at the expense of American consumers. But I do want to um, go back to a, 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 the basic argument for protectionism, which is that we need this in order to compete as in foreign manufacturers are going to undersell us if we don't protect our industries. And this is something that is radically underappreciated of just how much America is winning right now. Uh, like when you hear protectionist talk, you hear that a lot of things that are, aren't true, that we've de-industrialized, that we've fallen behind, that we cannot compete, and none of these are true. American manufacturers produce more stuff than ever. I mean, we manufacture, we export more than ever. The growing world has been a growing market for American products. This is a good thing. This, hel this, this, uh, this helps enrich the country. Um, and our protectionists act like that's not the case. Now, I will say on, on one thing that I think, that I think is, is, uh, is noteworthy is that we are producing more. We have, efficient, we have a lot of efficient industries, at least the ones that aren't um, uh, subject to massive amounts of protectionism like uh, uh, domestic shipbuilding, but we produce more things with fewer people, as in there's, there are fewer jobs in manufacturing, not much fewer, uh, uh, not much fewer but, there, but manufacturing jobs are down. Um, I, I believe, I forget the exact trends, but like we have this idea that the 70s was the golden time for manufacturing and it's been on the decline since then. I think we produced something like three times as much as we did in the 70s. And we also have more people in manufacturing jobs than we had then. I think the manufacturing jobs decline is around 2000. I mean, don't, you look up the numbers yourselves, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're easy to find. I just don't have them memorized. Um, um, but even though we have fewer manufacturing jobs, it's not like we have fewer jobs. We have more right. jobs in America than ever and income is higher. So this idea that we can't compete, that we have to protect, that we're failing, that we're falling behind, it's just not true. It's this, it, but it is a basic psychological bias that we really care if other people are beating us. And so a lot of lawmakers exploit that or a lot of people arguing for protectionism exploit that to try to get favors for themselves. And we got to look at those at those calls for protectionism with with just a little more skepticism than we're providing now, uh, because there's a lot of bad policies out there that elevate certain domestic interests above others and that make us all worse off. So Again, what about like, what about the argument that we've been running these trade deficits for a long time and that that's going to harm us, that we're importing more than we're exporting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so look at the numbers and you'll find that we are also exporting more than we ever have before. We are importing more. Right. But there and is an imbalance, right? The, the balance of payments is we are actually importing more than we're exporting. 
Well, we're also importing foreign dollars uh, yeah. through uh, through foreign investment. I mean, the like like the, this is one of the most oversold problems in in the world because when you look at it, it's still the principles of voluntary exchange that's leaving us all better off. As in, we're getting uh, products that people want. I know because people are spending their money buying them and we're selling more products that other people want. I know because more people are buying them. Uh, And as far as foreign investment is concerned, all of those, uh, all of those dollars that that go out, do come, uh, do come back in the form of foreign investment. It's um, uh, 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 foreigners buying Treasury bonds. It's investing in, in domestic uh, domestic factories. I mean, some of the uh, this is the thing. I don't know if you follow Mark Perry on Twitter. He's at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the University of Michigan Flint professor, uh, and he has a really interesting um, uh, chart that he shows out, which is the uh, the uh, the vehicles that have the most American parts in them. And it's not for GM and, and, and Stellantis now. It's, uh, it's some of our Southern manufacturers who are, who are doing this. Like there's a, um, a lot of those foreign entities are, um, that exist in America are employing people. They're producing products that Americans want. We, we should look at both imports and exports, not as this weird liability of, of that, that uh, that we're only importing because we're not uh, our domestic manufacturers are are uncompetitive. It's simply saying we're taking advantage of 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 the uh, of the things that people want to make sure that Americans get the best deal. And when we look at the foreign market abroad, that's what they're doing too. People around the world buy more American products. These are good things, and the fact that we import more than we export is kind of irrelevant to me. The question is, are we using the resources of the world to get people what they want? And we are doing that. And and again, like America's a wealthy country, we're growing and we've got more jobs than ever. Uh, Like, like I don't see what problem uh, a lot of these protectionist policies are trying to solve. Well, I, I read an article of yours from I think 2020 and you made a very salient point in that free trade is just what happens when the government stays out of the way. Like the government can't impose free trade on us is what what you said. When I I think I was 22 years old and I read Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose. And he mentioned this whole trade imbalance thing. And he said that we lose, we, we gain imports at the expense of exports, that we should want more goods and services coming into the country because that's what real wealth is. Wealth consists of goods and services, not paper dollars. And Adam Smith, I mean, 1776, The Wealth of Nations talked about, you know, it's just people are choosing to trade with other people, with other countries. They they want to forego the use of cash, money, whatever, you know, they called it back then for goods. And the whole idea of the balance in payments, right, was, was the mercantilist idea that wealth consisted of gold and silver. So when you were buying imports, you're sending your gold out of the country. So they think they're getting poor. But this idea was demolished by Adam Smith and even further by Ricardo with his law of association, right? So the law of association or law of comparative advantage, can you explain that to us? All right. So I actually want to try and reframe reframe this a little bit, which is that um, uh, to try and help uh, people, uh, because I think a lot of people are concerned about the balance of trade. Right, like this is a thing that come that comes up. We're importing uh, more than we're exporting, and this is a bad thing that's somehow leaving us uh, worse off. 
okay, what is what do the imports represent? What are uh, what are we importing? Well, I don't think there's some uh, there, there clearly is no central planner in America telling you to buy foreign goods. You go to the store, you pick up a good, you look at the label, and sometimes it says that it's made in a country other than America, right? Okay, why'd you buy that good? Um, you, you fully have it within your power to, to say, you know, this, this is a fundamental concern to me as an American citizen that I'm, per, that I'm encouraging imports at the expense of domestic manufacturers. And very few people do this. Why? Because you either don't have the option or it doesn't matter to you. All right, so why does that decision, and, and by the way, and, and also uh, when our domestic uh, manufacturers are looking to sell their products, um, they look at the foreign market as an asset, as in, great, we can sell, we can sell more, uh, uh, more auto parts to, uh, to companies in Thailand. That's great, for, that's great for us. I'm glad we can, we can, uh, uh, we can diversify our customer base. So it's another win-win situation uh, for them. So we've got win-wins on one hand, where a person purchases a good because uh, the alternatives are less are are more inconvenient than uh, than the option to buy a domestic good. And we have on on the export side, it's another win-win situation of someone wanting American products. Okay, so where's the losses? I just don't really see the, so there is a theoretical loss in that that person who was purchasing that imported good could have purchased something from a domestic manufacturer, maybe. I mean, it really depends on the product now, doesn't it? I mean, that's a very micro level problem. And what protectionism uh, protectionists are saying in general is that we can elevate these domestic manufacturers who we probably don't even know uh, to help that um, uh, that person make a, a decision, it's going to cost them more, um, but but we're going to be better off, even though that person fundamentally thinks that this product is more convenient than the alternative. So we're going to make them let uh, uh, we're going to get in 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 the way of what that person thinks is best for them and say that they're better off. I mean, these are the problems of protectionist policies. It's again, like it's it's trying to apply a theory and intent, which I think is good. Like, like we should want American policy to be, or to put Americans first, but in the practical application of these policies, it puts some Americans more first than others. And doesn't it assume an inelasticity of demand? Because they're assuming, like you said, like I might be choosing to buy this product because of the low cost and the, the quality is such that at the cost it, it's at, I can fit it into my budget. But raising the cost, I may say I don't want it any longer, but that's what they're doing. And it, it assumes you're going to sell the same amount, even if you raise the price, but that's not accurate either, right? I mean, unless there's the complete inelasticity of demand, which is a very yeah. rare thing. So that's that's an important point. Um, but when you hear protectionist people, I don't think it's way like like this. This is again like one of the problems of of, of economic protectionism is that there is like for it to work, it has to be done by top men weighing those uh, that calculus of saying that 
okay, the, these products are uh, do have inelastic demand. If we're going to increase the prices, we're going to reduce the demand, but this is gonna come out ahead because there's gonna be uh, 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 the supply chains for this industry are more domestic and there's gonna create higher income and, uh, and the manufacturing processes that they're using are a little bit more effective. It's just they have higher labor costs. So we're gonna protect that. And here are gonna be all the economic consequences. That's not how protectionism works. I mean, this is the second, uh, 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 insight that I want to bring to this uh, to this table is that if even if you have this theory that that we can come out ahead if we use protectionism, it's going to get cycled through a political process, and that political process is not weighing the economic costs and benefits. It's weighing the political costs and benefits. So what happens with protectionist policies, at least as far as I can tell, is that. Um, Congressmen get approached by an interest group that says, do this thing or let <laughs> us keep having this thing. Politicians generally are not trying to, to say, okay, what is our economic model? How are we going to figure out the costs and benefits to the public as a whole uh, from this proposal this interest group is pitch, pitch me? Instead, they're weighing the political benefits from giving the interest group what they want and the political costs of not giving them what they want. And those interest groups, like, like maybe if they had a good economic calculus, they would only be pitching things where the public comes out ahead. And frankly, if I was an interest group and I had something that really benefited the public, seems like that would be a really easy way to get what I wanted, but that's not what it works. I mean, Madison talks about this in Federalist 10 with the problem of faction. It's like, it's easy to tell yourself that what's good for you is good for the nation. Um, but let's try and get uh, um, disinterested people here who are gonna be better judges. And those disinterested people are not our congressmen. Our congressmen have a vested interest in getting political benefits and avoiding political costs. And, uh, and those the calculus that they use tends to favor protectionism, not because it's good for America, but because it's good for their political interests. And this is, the, again, the problem of concentrated benefits. They're buying costs. votes, in other words, right? That, that's so, what they're doing. When they, when they come out here and they offer policies like protectionism, they, one, can get donations from the companies that want to be protected, and two, they can convince their voters to vote for them. So it's a vote buying scheme in part, at least. So one of the things that, that I do, in addition to writing things for AIER when I, uh, about protectionism when I've got some time, is that I am a public policy advocate. I am trying to encourage free market policies, in particular those facing the state of Michigan. And what that means is I have to try and understand what's going to change policy. And so the, I've gotten a couple of useful models to help, to help look at these things. Now, um, when you say that they're buying votes, that is just one of the things that an interest groups uh, interest uh, an interest group can provide a lawmaker. Uh, they're they're the basic three important uh, elements of politics. That's money, votes, and press, or at least attention to an issue. And interest groups are good at trying to say, look, if you if you do what I want, I'm going to make my campaign contributions. The people who I represent. You know, like a lot of these interest groups do have, I mean, there are a lot of steel workers in America still. And, and if you give the steel workers what they want, perhaps they're going to be more inclined to vote for you. And, and especially if 
you've got a couple of steel mills in your district, they're going to pay more, uh, your lawmakers are going to pay more attention to them. And then press. Uh, press is another interesting thing. Po um, politicians do need to be in the spotlight. They do need attention to them telling pe uh, their constituents how great of a person that they are. Now, on the other side, the people who pay for these things, oh, so, so th those are the things that politicians want. Interest groups are good at giving our lawmakers things that they want to help to help further their interests. Deliver but, the goods, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I don't, and that's not a corrupt situation. Like the interest groups are people who are applying their hold own on, hold on, hold on, hold on. How is that not corrupt? If if you are, are a politician, right? And you are doing something that you don't believe that ultimately is going to harm the country. And you have an interest group that you're basically trading in favors, right? They're going to provide you with X, Y, and Z, and you're going to provide them with A, B, and C. I don't it, know how that's not corrupt. So it is easy to take a jaundiced view of, of the situation. And you're right that there are some people who, who do it. But let's try and understand how easy we are to deceive ourselves. And this is why I don't think it's fundamental. So for instance, um, I do, it is illegal to buy votes as in you, you can't, you can't give a lawmaker money and say, you're going to vote against us. Here's, here's a check. Now you're voting for us. That is that that is against the law that that and the and people who do that should be prosecuted and i'm glad that we have the federal bureau of investigation that brings charges against corrupt public officials and the people who bribe them but we are so easy to deceive ourselves and again this goes back to madison and federalist 10 and this applies to both interest people who have a vested interest in a political outcome who think that what who really do think in their in their heart of hearts that what's good for them is good for the nation but also our lawmakers uh, who, are, who are more inclined to give them what they want because they feel that they are good for the nation. They've got the right ideas, the right political judgments to usher us into the future. And so that's just a mutual coincidence of, 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 people, want, uh, of people thinking that they're both going uh, to sure. let people know. But that's, but fundamentally what these, interest groups are doing are expressing free speech rights. And that's still important even for uh, for the people who uh, who I think are not advancing the country's Oh, you, you won't get an argument out of me. Yeah. And, the, and the, the whole point to me here is that citizens, whether they be belong to a company, a corporation, individual capacity, whatever, ought to have the right to speak freely. The problem comes into play is when government is granted power to give out favors. So the thing to do there would be to restrict or to restrict government power, not to restrict the free speech of the citizenry. But that leads me to, to a, another well, actually, point can I, about can this. I oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. There, um, yeah, because this is something that that I care uh, care deeply about. Of like, given all of these problems, how do you have an effect on policy? How do you get around these protectionist traps that leave us all worse off? Now, have you heard of the Overton window? Sure. Yeah, so this this is actually came from us. It's uh, named after our our former vice or um, uh, former vice president uh, Joe Overton, and the idea is simply that politicians cannot enact whatever legislation they want. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of uh, uh, of ideas, and that range is called the Overton window. Sure. And on this issue right now, when you have concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, who have won a lot of favors already. 
federal policy is rife with favoritism, with people getting advantages at the public's expenses. And they're getting this because the public has essentially been sold snake oil. So they, they've been told that they're getting protectionism, but they're really getting favoritism. Uh, but uh, the way to get rid of this is, is to break through public apathy. As in, if you actually get people to care, to see these type of things, to be more skeptical when politicians are selling protectionism, it becomes politically toxic. And then we can start rolling back on the favoritism that is that is already gone. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. That's why I'm right. I write about this issue. Why I try to promote other people who have some good ideas about this, because it's it's really I we're we're a long ways to go before we get rid of the Jones Act, those domestic shipping regulations, or or to look at the worst tariffs that uh, that lead. Uh, that, that increase costs without, uh, uh, without doing much in, in, in way of protectionism. Uh, but I think like that's just getting more attention to this, getting more skepticism to, to fighting a, a, against that in-group, out-group bias. Because once this is popular, a politician can, uh, when, when they get approached by those interest groups to say, look, you gotta keep our favors, they're saying, look, our cons my constituents don't want it. And that's the most important thing that matters uh, to lawmakers. If we can make this this issue more popular, I think we can we can make some progress. Sure. Well, that's why you do what you do, and I do what I do is to try to bring light to these issues, right? And it, it reminds me to of one of the greatest costs. No, I'm going to say maybe the greatest cost that can't be measured in dollars and cents here, and that is the restriction on people's liberty, my right to trade with whomever I want. If I want to deal with somebody from China, Russia, wherever. Nobody has a right to interfere with that, but that's what these policies do. They limit our freedom. I'm an advocate of all-out laissez-faire capitalism, right? And that is not right now in this, it, within the Overton window, as you said. People like their minimum wage laws. They like Social Security. They like Medicare. That's why what I want to do is smash the Overton window. I want to, to, to broaden the scope of the discussion so that we can actually have a, a real conversation about what is the right thing to do and what is the best thing to do. And it goes to me beyond just the protectionism is that there's such an anti-capitalist sort of, uh, it's beyond the mentality. I want to say mentality, but it's actually a, a movement. I mean, even the, the conservatives who are supposed to be your pro-capitalist uh, politicians or the pro-capitalist movement, you've got popular conservatives. Tucker Carlson went on an anti-capitalist screed. Donald Trump certainly is, is no capitalist. Recently, uh, J.D. Vance from uh, where, Ohio said some anti-capitalist things. So I think that we really need to promote all-out capitalism. I think it's great. I think this protectionist discussion is phenomenal because so many people seem to be buying into it. I read that uh, I think it's 83 to 86% of economists uh, from all stripes, would they be Keynesians, supply siders, Austrians, monetarists, whatever, oppose tariffs. They're for free trade. Economists hardly agree on anything, but they agree on this. But yet the public seems to think that it's a good idea. And it seems to me that the reason that happens is because of demagogues, demagogues like Trump, that convince people they're being screwed by these policies and they're going to come and be the savior. Is this resonating? Does this sound familiar to you at all? Let me let me try to defend what what I call incrementalism. 
as in okay. like wanting to shift the Overton window. It's, it's really it's really important to to have a good idea of where you want to go. Like laissez-faire capitalism. Like I, I know the benefits of this. I know why it's a better system uh, system that uh, uh, than than what we've got right now. And what you should want to do is to try to take steps to do this because we fundamentally, at least in, in America, and, and there are different places, I think the dictatorships can, can wave their wand and get free market capitalism if they wanted it, although it winds up being self-contradictory because the point of a dictatorship is to benefit the dictator and not the public. But we have a, 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 a republic or try to have a Republican America. And what that means is that politicians react to what is popular. And I want good ideas to be more popular. And mm -hmm. I'm going to get that by convincing my neighbors, my fellow, uh, my, my fellow voters about why there are about the steps that we need to take to get in, into a better world. And the best way to do that is to find the excesses to, uh, to show that they're, that they're unhelpful and that they're unhelpful even if you don't share my ideology. To, to demonstrate that there are problems so that we can uh, we can make incremental steps to that better world. Now that it that idea, that free market thing, like it provides a lot of insights. It helps us understand what it's going to look like once we get closer to these ideals, but we need to get our fellow citizens along the way to make sure that this revolutionary place that we're headed is places that everyone wants to go not just the people uh, uh, who, who, who have these ideas. So that's why I want to be, I think incrementalism is really important because uh, it's not just that there's a better future for us. It's a better future that we all have to want to go to. Okay. When you say incrementalism, right? Do you mean incrementalism in terms of policy or principle? What I mean by that is this. I say I advocate all outlays on fair capitalism. I know that we're not tomorrow going to get rid of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public schools, minimum wage laws. It's just not going to happen. And if it were to happen, it would harm so many people who would get thrown off all of these government programs that the capitalism itself probably wouldn't work. That's my view. So the way that I look at it is this, advocate and say, these are the principles that we need to be reaching for, right? We need to be reaching toward laissez-faire capitalism. Now, how do we get there? What are some steps that we could take? We could lower taxes, we could lower or get rid of the minimum wage. We can uh, introduce a voucher system and education to stir up competition. We can move towards it, but always by keeping the goal in mind, what we want. We don't want a mixed economy. So we don't want to come off, or I don't want to come off as advocating a mixed economy because then it's like, okay, goal achieved. We've had our contract with America, the welfare reform. We've, we've done our, our job. That to me is, is a recipe for disaster. So you have, I think we have to argue for our principles, but perhaps move there incrementally. That I'm okay with. What I'm not okay with is saying incrementally that, oh, I think we should cut taxes by X as if that's the end goal. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think you're right about that. But let me, let me tell you about how I think about this, which is okay. that those principles give us insights into what's 
going on wrong here? And we can test those too, because we do need to make sure that we're not just uh, ideologues who think that we've got the right answer. We, can, we need to demonstrate that we've got some improvements in this, which is why I do a lot of empirical testing. I do a lot of, uh, uh, I, I, I try to find some evidence that even if you don't agree with me on, on, on ideas, you've got to struggle with some of the problems that they cause. So that's where principle is really important. It helps give us a theory. It helps give us something to test. And it, it can help us identify the places where we're worst off. So uh, again, like, I think we should get rid of the Jones Act. I think that is a step that we can take that would leave us all better off. Okay, because, what is uh, the Jones Act? That's yeah, where that's, he, that's where if, if you're not an, yeah. carrying American goods, you can't go to American ports yeah, or, yeah. or some such thing. What exactly is we've, it? We've talked about that uh, already. It's the domestic shipping requirement that uh, um, that you cannot ship from port to port in America, from domestic port to domestic port on uh, on a ship that is not built, manned, and flagged in America. Okay. Or an owned suit too. I forgot the owned uh, part. Um, so it, this is this is uh, this is a favor to shipbuilding industries and shipbuilding industries in America. Although I, outside of warships, I assume uh, because we do have a huge navy. Um, but outside of that, the the actual uh, shipping ships. Um, uh, we do not have an efficient market for this. And this makes shipping things from domestic port to domestic port smaller and more expensive. And we'd be better off without the Jones Act. And, right. and Thank I you for reiterating this. that. I appreciate yes. it. Yes. And I know that, and I think this is a good step to take because uh, I follow the work of Colin Gray about the Cato Institute, who is trying to test all the theories for how this could possibly uh, come out uh, uh, how, uh, uh, of how this could possibly, or all the arguments that they make for why this is important. He finds them lacking. He uses a lot of good empirical data, but I think he does that because he's he's got some good ideas about things that, uh, um, uh, about um, mutual exchange and free, and free market ideas and emerge an emergent uh, order. I mean, you'll have to really ask him about, uh, about his ideas. I'm not exactly sure, but I think that's some of the reason why he has insights to this, uh, to this Jones, uh, to this Jones Act situation and how we should get rid of it. And we'd all be better off. What's his name? I'm going to write it down right now. Uh, I'm going to try to get him on. Okay. It's Colin Graybow, G-R-A-B-O-W. And he's at the Cato Institute. I mean, he's, uh, he, yeah, he is an expert on the Jones Act. He knows How do you more spell that last name again? Yeah, G R A B O W. Uh, okay, he, got it. He's he's he just knows so much. He's followed this issue so uh, so closely. Um, uh, uh, check him out because I think he makes a compelling argument. I definitely will for sure. You make kind of a compelling argument yourself. Oh, uh, thank you. And <laughs> so, I, that's why I wanted you on. I read your article. I thought it was great. So before we before we go, is there anything we left out? Anything you you want to add to what we've discussed? So I I do want to reiterate um, this this thing that I think uh, protectionists are exploiting, which is this belief that America is falling behind, and we're not. We're producing more than ever. Uh, we've got more jobs than ever. We've got more income than ever. Now we can we can talk about like trying to make this as, as a system that works for everyone, but this protectionism that we're talking about really uh, protects some domestic interests at the expense of others, and uh, and our the supporters for it just don't seem to try and grapple with with these issues. So 
what I view it as like this, as a scientist is pitching his new invention, he's made a creature that is going to chop wood and pick cabbages, and it's made from 100% recycling, recycled material, and it's going to take us into the future. But we ask him, Dr. Frankenstein, haven't you already tried this? Didn't you create a monster? And Dr. Frankenstein responds, don't worry about it. My intents are pure, and this will work. And everyone should ask, how is this going to be any different? Um, because we've got um, uh, bad policies from the past constantly being pitched to us, even though we've seen the results. Okay, so where can people find you if they want to read your stuff or listen yeah. to other interviews you might have done? <laughs> yeah, you can check me out at, or, at our website at Mackinac.org, and that's M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C. So it's a Frenchified or sorry, an English interpretation of a French interpretation of an Algonquin word. So yeah, normally it doesn't make, or it's not going to make any sense, but uh, it's named after Mackinac Island. Um, so spelled like the island, not the city. All right. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your perspective with us today. For now, this is Michael Leibowitz and the Rational Egoist signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Until next time.